Good morning, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. We're glad that um, each of you is here today. So excited to be finishing up Acts uh, with each of you today. And I want to shout out to the West Campus. We're glad that uh, West Campus is joining us today too. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And there's no place I'd rather be today than with the Fort Worth Campus and with the West Campus uh, teaching the Word of God and finishing up what a great study we've had in Acts for the last uh, 16 weeks. Uh, I just want to remind everyone that we do have a summer Women in the Word coming up. It will begin on Thursday, June the 4th. We will be over in the Oak Room every Thursday night at 7 o'clock. It's going to be a great, fun, casual time to study the Word of God together. So no matter what you're doing this summer, plan to come for five Thursdays uh, beginning June the 4th and join us for Summer Women in the Word. You know, one of my daughter-in-laws has some great family memories as we approach summer. It's a good time to think about making those family memories. And she has some great family memories of visiting her aunt and uncle's uh, big ranch in the Panhandle. Now, out in the middle of the Panhandle, there's not a lot of big city activities to be entertained by. So one of the things that she remembers the most is that they would do these giant jigsaw puzzles together, the ones that have thousands and thousands of pieces. Now, I have to confess, although I love hearing her memories of those, um, those kind of jigsaw puzzles are intimidating to me. All those little bitty tiny pieces just seem overwhelming. But as a grandmother... I found my niche finally in jigsaw puzzles. It's those Melissa and Doug floor puzzles that have about 24 pieces and all the pieces are about these this big. I totally rock those. I totally rock those big pieces. I'm almost as good as the uh, two and three-year-olds that I'm doing them uh, with. But it's been fun really to do those uh, puzzles with my grandkids and watch them catch on to the fact that that big picture on the box top means something. And I was doing one of the puzzles with my two-year-old grandson, and we finished that floor puzzle, and the big picture on the box top was lying there. And he just looked over in wonder, and he said, Gigi, they match. He just finally caught on to what that big picture was all about. It had a purpose, and he had finally realized it. You know, we're going to finish our journey with Paul today as we've walked with him through a lot of different experiences. But what we're going to talk about today is the fact that Paul really does know the big picture as he finishes his journey. When it comes to his life and ministry, Paul knows what that picture looks like, Uh, and it gives him a perspective Knowing that picture gives him a perspective, an eternal perspective. Paul knows that the resurrected Jesus is the Messiah because he met him face to face on the road to Damascus. He also knows that Jesus has called all of his followers to be a worldwide witness to him. This is how we started in Acts 1-8 on your verse sheet. 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You know, Paul knows another thing that's part of his picture. He knows he's been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Look at Acts 9, 15 and 16 on your verse sheet. But the Lord said to him, go for he, meaning Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for my for the sake of my name another thing that Paul knows is that he's going to Rome um, to be with to be the witness of our Lord Jesus Christ in the center of the Gentile world we saw this a couple of weeks ago in Acts 23 look at Acts 23 11 the following night the Lord stood by him and said take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem So you must testify in Rome. You know, as we've looked at Paul's life the last few weeks, uh, it has seemed hard and complicated, hasn't it? It's been filled with riots and arrests and beatings and jail cells. But knowing the big picture of who Jesus is and what he has called him to do has given Paul an eternal perspective that actually makes even all that chaos seem pretty simple. In spite of how complicated his life is, Paul is not focused on those trials and tribulations. Paul is focused on one thing. He writes about it in 1 Corinthians. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And Philippians 3.14, he writes about it again. Um, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Since meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul has done one thing, and that is keep his eyes focused on Jesus and the imperishable future that he has with Jesus in eternity. And what we're going to look at today is how that eternal perspective takes Paul all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. So let's read together, beginning in chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of the Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, and he put us on board. Now think back to the last few weeks where Paul has been. 
And he started out being arrested after a riot in the temple of Jerusalem. And then he's tried before the high priest in Jerusalem, but um, that didn't go too well. There was a plot hatched against Paul. So he's taken by armed guard all the way to Caesarea so the Jews would not have a chance to murder him. And then in Caesarea, he's tried first before Felix the governor and then Festus the governor and finally King Agrippa. He would have been acquitted, actually, by the local Romans if he had not appealed to Rome as a Roman citizen. He's languished in Caesarea for two years while all this drama takes place. But now, finally, he is on his way to Rome. Now, we don't know how many other prisoners are with Paul right here, but we do know that Luke is apparently with him because he starts out this chapter as the author referring to uh, himself with we. So we know that he's with Paul. We also know that the Roman centurion Julius is with him, and Julius is going to play an important role. We're going to see... Uh, here in these chapters and Paul has a great friend named Aristarchus and he is going to not only travel with Paul to Rome but he ends up staying with Paul for two years while he's imprisoned in Rome so Paul and his companions and the other prisoners and the Roman soldiers depart Caesarea and what they do is they sail north and then they sail west because of the prevailing winds they evidently end up on this grain ship um, that's bound for Italy And then they find themselves on the south side of Crete in a harbor called Fair Haven. So let's read what happens next. And look at verse 9. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Verse 9 mentions the fast, which always takes, which is the Day of Atonement, which happens uh, during the, anywhere from the middle uh, to late September, early October generally. So probably what we know here is that it is late to middle October. The weather has already been problematic for them. It's delayed them longer than what they wanted to. And now it's considered dangerous to be traveling by sea. Really from mid-September on, you didn't want to be on a ship in the Mediterranean. Many of the harbors actually closed for the winter. So if you were on a ship, you didn't have any place to stop and get provisions. Now, Paul, at this point in his life, has already experienced at least 11 sea voyages, according to Luke, and three shipwrecks. He's already been in three shipwrecks. He's logged over 3,000 miles by sea. That's pretty um, incredible. And that may be the reason that they've allowed him as a prisoner to speak up here in verse 10, because he's a seasoned sea traveler. They know how many times he's been on ships and all of the hardships he's faced. But even though he His um, experience as a sea traveler is pretty significant, um, and his reputation as a man of God has probably preceded him. They probably all know why he's on that ship going to Rome. His counsel is ignored here. The centurion listens to the pilot and to the ship owner, and they totally brush off that Paul has told them, hey, we're going to be in big trouble here, guys. Um, 
Now, if I had been in Paul's shoes right here, I would have been discouraged. I would have had a pretty intense conversation with God. I can anticipate there might have been some begging and pleading on my part. Um, A fourth shipwreck was not something I would have personally been looking forward to. But Luke doesn't record any of that from Paul here. And he doesn't record it because that's not who Paul was. Paul is a man that focuses not on the hardship that he knows it's coming. Paul focuses on the big picture. And his big picture has set his face on finishing the race and winning the prize. He knows he's going to Rome to testify, and that's what he's thinking about. He's not thinking about the dangerous ship journey, even though he's offered his advice. What he's thinking about is testifying to Jesus everywhere he goes. Paul is a man who is going to persevere through another hard circumstance because he has an eternal perspective. Paul knows that hard circumstance is coming, but he's not the kind of guy that dwells on it. We don't see Luke record panic in uh, Paul's voice as the centurion overlooks him. Paul simply perseveres. He simply perseveres. When my middle son became um, engaged to his beautiful bride uh, 13 years ago, her father had just been diagnosed with cancer. And the cancer was so advanced that the whole time that all of us were planning the wedding and going to parties and showers, he was having surgery and chemotherapy and radiation. Um, His health deteriorated so significantly that at one point the doctors even discussed with everyone moving the wedding date up so that he would have um, an opportunity to walk his daughter down the aisle on his wedding day. But Bill, um, her dad, knew the meaning of the word persevere. And everybody that knew him watched him persevere. And he did persevere and walk his daughter down the aisle on the wedding day. He was pretty weak by then. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't an easy thing to do, but he did it. He did it. He persevered. Just a couple of months before he died, I had the privilege of driving him to one of his many treatment appointments. And when I did, I discovered the source of his great perseverance during that time. As we sat in the waiting room together... Um, And he was in stage by that time, pretty weak. And everybody in the room uh, was being treated for cancer. So it wasn't a fun place to be waiting. Uh, But he looked over at me and he said, you know, this is a pretty exciting time in my life. Um, And he was a bit of a jokester. So I was thinking that what was going to come out of his mouth was a joke about the next treatment that he was going to receive. Instead, he just continued on and he said, you know, it's not going to be very long until I actually am. I'm in heaven and I get to meet Jesus face to face. That's exciting to think about. That eternal perspective was the source of Bill's great perseverance. He was running a hugely difficult race with perseverance simply because he had an eternal perspective. He was focused on what he had to gain in eternity, not what he had to lose in this life, which was much. It was much. And that's Paul's perspective exactly. He's always focused on what he has to gain in the big picture and not focused on what he has to lose. Look at Philippians 1.21 on your verse sheet. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul wrote those. Words, an eternal perspective develops a spirit of perseverance in our life, even as we view difficulty and death. 
Okay, now as Paul has predicted, you know there is a terrible storm. He was right about that. They should have stayed where they were. They leave this harbor in fair heavens and before very long, before they can reach this other harbor, they are facing hurricane force winds. Look at verse 18 in chapter 27. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul the prisoner, we see, now becomes Paul the leader of this disastrous uh, sail that they have um, uh, entered into. The voyage has actually turned just as deadly as Paul predicted. The storm has been raging for days and the ship has been taking on water. So they've been concerned it was going to sink. So they begin to throw everything they can get their hands on overboard in order to save themselves and to save that ship. But what does Paul do? He stands up in the middle of that chaos. And I can't imagine um, how they could even hear him in the uh, roar of that storm or how he could even stand up and, and balance himself. But he does. He stands up in the middle. He takes charge. And the first thing he tells them is, I was right before. You should have listened to me. Now, Paul doesn't refer to how right he was before because out of pride. What he really does here is he's trying to establish his credibility. Hey, guys, if we'd listened to me the first time, we wouldn't be in this. And so now he wants them to take him seriously and listen to him because he has something pretty significant to say. A messenger from God, an angelic visitor, has actually come to him and given him great hope. He's told Paul that he is going to go to Rome and stand in Caesarea. Stand before Caesar. But, you know, the people around him, I doubt, are wildly interested in what's going to happen to Paul. But he goes on to say, This involves you too. God has told me that he has granted your lives also, and you are going to be saved along with me. I imagine that Paul had been praying, don't you? Don't you think that every minute that storm had raged, Paul had been on his knees asking for God's intervention and asking for God to save his life and the lives of everyone with him. And God, it says right here in the text, that God has granted you all those who sail with him. In God's great mercy through this angelic visitor, we see a great testimony of God's power and uh, his strength. And Paul says that to these frightened passengers. He says, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship cares about you. He cares about me. 
And because of his testimony that God is at work, even as they are being tossed around by that storm, when Paul's predictions do come true, and we know that they do, it's going to be God that gets the glory, isn't it? Not Paul. Think when all those people think back to those moments when they thought we are all going to die here, they're going to remember what Paul had to say to them. And he said to them that it was his God that was going to save their life. That's what they're going to remember, that the God that Paul worshipped saved them. And it's going to have a lasting impact, I can imagine, on everyone that was on that ship and heard those words. Let's keep reading and see what happens. Let's look at verse 29. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As dawn was, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it, and he began to eat. And then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Paul's still the captain of this ship, isn't he? He's still the one that's standing up. He's directing the soldiers. We see he's looking ahead to what they're going to need as they all try to swim to shore. They're going to be strengthened, so they need to eat, and he directs that. He even prays over the food for them, giving testimony to the Lord um, that it's going to be God that saves them in the end. What we see here is that Paul has met all of them exactly where they are. He's addressed their emotional needs by um, calming their fears. He's addressed their physical needs by getting them all to eat. He's addressed their spiritual needs by making sure they all understand when they wash up on that shore safe and sound, it's God that's going to get the credit for that. Now, we could probably say that Paul's previous three shipwrecks have prepared him for this moment but I don't think that's true. I think what has prepared Paul to have hope and courage and wisdom in the midst of a sinking ship is his eternal perspective, his eternal perspective. Paul knows who Jesus is. He knows what Jesus has called him to do, and it gives him the courage to step up when it looks certain that everything is lost, uh, that there is no hope, and it allows him to step up and give hope and give encouragement when all is seems to be lost. And what we know is that Paul's words of hope and encouragement are not empty, are they? He's not just saying that because he wants to make everyone feel better. Paul believes in the hope that he's offering when he speaks to the fellow passengers, and it shows. You know, he's in the same dire situation that they're in. He's on the same boat. He's been in the same hurricane for 14 days with them. But he's not overwhelmed by fear. He's not hopeless. And everyone around him knows the difference. They see the difference. You know, one of the great blessings of having an eternal perspective is the fact that we get to be an example 
to the world around us. Our hope is different. Our hope is real. And our courage is not based on who we are. Our courage is always based on who our God is. National Day of Prayer uh, is coming up actually next Thursday. And I know it's not a surprise to all of you, but our culture sometimes feels like a sinking ship, doesn't it? Like we're all in the midst of a shipwreck that is waiting to happen. On National Day of Prayer right here in the sanctuary, we're going to be having prayer from 7 in the morning until 7 in the evening. You can come in at any time and pray for this sinking ship that uh, we all feel like we're on. There are serious issues in our nation that we can be addressing. In fact, at noon, right here in the sanctuary, our senior pastor, Ted Kitchens, is going to be having a guiding, a prayer service that's going to be praying for the Supreme Court's decision they're considering right now of same-sex marriage. And so we will be praying about that right here on National Day of Prayer because that decision is going to be one that continues to shape our culture. You know, and as we stand together on National Day of Prayer, that is going to be an amazing opportunity for us to demonstrate that we know who God is and we know what God has called us to do. And we can be that example of hope and courage and and wisdom um, in our culture, just like Paul is on the deck of that sinking ship, because we're going to stand together in prayer. And because it's God that we will be asking next Thursday to intervene in our uh, shipwreck of a culture, it's going to be God that gets the glory, isn't it, when he answers. Look what Paul believes about his God that allows him, even in the worst of times, to be an example of hope and courage and wisdom. Look at Ephesians 3.20 on your verse sheet. This is Paul. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. An eternal perspective allows us to be an example to the world around us and give the glory to God. Now, chapter 27 finishes with the crew trying to beach the boat um, on a sand, on a uh, beach that they find. But unfortunately, before they make it to the beach, the ship sticks on a sandbar and the surf causes it to break up. Now, the soldiers become concerned that the prisoners are going to escape and they're going to be held responsible for that. So they hatch a plan just to flat out execute all of them. And right here we see God's sovereignty in verse 43. Uh, look at that with me where it says but the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan Julius jumps in right here as an instrument of God's sovereignty and saves Paul's life. He saves Paul's life. Now, we don't know whether he does that because Julius knows Paul is a Roman citizen that hasn't really been convicted of a crime. But there is a possibility that Julius may have um, had some conversations with Paul. At the very least, he's watched Paul step up and be captain of this sinking ship. Um, So there is a possibility that Julius may have become a Christian on this voyage with Paul. Either way, what we see is that he has become an instrument of God's hand, and he saves Paul from being executed before he reaches Rome. So let's look at verse uh, 1 in chapter 28. 
After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging, were lands belonging to the chief of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. You know, Paul's predictions have once more come true. Even though they've had a horrible shipwreck, uh, the ship is broken up. They've all managed to be saved and make it to shore. They've washed ashore on the island of Malta. If you still have your map from the first of the semester, you may want to look and see where Malta is. It's just south of the mainland of Italy. Um, And there they're greeted by the natives, and they're really treated pretty well. These are educated people. They're not wild Indians, but they treat them very well. And we see Paul one more time taking the lead here. They're all cold and wet and in various stages of of exhaustion. And as they begin to build fires and dry out Paul himself, um, he doesn't sit down and rest, but he walks around and he picks up wood and puts it on the fire. When out of the fire jumps a poisonous snake, and that's what the word viper here means, is that it's a poisonous snake and latches onto his arm. Now, have you ever had one of those days where you've been shipwrecked and then the snake jumps out and latches onto your arm? I have, or at least there have been times when I felt like that, when I felt, okay, I just survived the shipwreck. I've just washed up here on the shore and I need to catch my breath when all of a sudden the snake jumps out and bites you. Um, Probably the best thing that all of us can do on that day when we think, praise God, we survived the shipwreck, and then the poisonous snake bites us, is to follow Paul's example. Because what we see here is that Paul keeps the big picture in view, even though he's washed up on the shore and he's got a poisonous snake hanging from his arm. Paul knows who Jesus is. He knows what Jesus has called him to do. And he doesn't let either a shipwreck or a poisonous snake um, allow him to focus on himself or those hardships. In fact, what we see Paul do here is just the opposite. Instead of thinking about himself and saying, 
Oh my gosh, my life is so hard, God. What is going on here? What we see him do here in the text is focus on others. The father of the Roman governor that has welcomed them is ill. And so Paul visits him. He's not expecting people to minister to him. He is out ministering to other people. He visits the sick father. He prays for him and heals him. And then everyone on the island congregates and begins to bring their um, sick family members to Paul to heal them, and he does. The people had called Paul a god when he didn't fall down dead with that uh, viper on his arm. But what he really was was a messenger of the one true God. He ministers to the people of Malta, both physically and spiritually. And they thank him by um, honoring him and returning the favor of giving him provisions when he leaves. When he leaves. Paul's eternal perspective has kept him other-focused even as he washes up on a beach after a shipwreck in the middle of nowhere. And you know, an eternal perspective will serve us equally well when we keep the big picture of who God is and what he's called us to do, then we're other-focused and we begin to do ministry in whatever that looks like wherever we are. You know, ministry and being other-focused is not just something that we write on our calendar on that one free day of the month when we don't have anything else scheduled. Uh, We don't do ministry just because our life is good and we have time. We don't do ministry because we are not stretched or not tired or not challenged. We do ministry because we have an eternal perspective. Um, Our senior pastor, Ted Kitchens, uh, has talked before about his dad, Charlie. And Charlie's a great example of this. Charlie accepted Christ really late in his life when he was retiring. And after he retired and came to know Jesus, he spent nine years in the poorest part of the mountains of Mexico. And out of his own little retirement income, he bought food and he distributed it every single week to the um, villagers that would come to pick up rice and beans. And while they waited in line to get Charlie's rice and beans, he had the Jesus film playing over here on the side. So they heard the gospel every single week. He fed them physically and he fed them spiritually. There was a time in Charlie's life, he'd worked probably for over 60 years by that point when he could have said, what about me? I feel like I'm washed up on the beach here and and, um, maybe a little snake bit. But instead, Charlie had an eternal perspective and it had him doing ministry even when the circumstances of his life said, retire, take care of yourself. Now, Charlie's health eventually became too bad for him to stay in Mexico. So he had to come home and he lived in a nursing home. He had his uh, granddaughter, Cassie, make a little flyer that said, thank you, Jesus. And Charlie would wheel his wheelchair around wherever he was and hand out Thank you, Jesus, to anyone that he thought God directed him to. Charlie's eternal perspective had taken over his life. And just like Paul, no matter what condition he was in, he was other-focused. So even when life is a shipwreck and a snake bite, we can do the exact same thing if we have an eternal perspective. If we remember who God is and what he has called us to do. 
Okay, let's finish our journey in Acts. When Paul and his friends actually spend the winter on Malta. And then they find a ship that takes them north to the mainland of, of uh, Italy. And what happens when they approach the city of Rome is that Paul has the great privilege of meeting his very first group of Roman Christians. They must hear that Paul is coming. They travel down the Appian Way and meet him just outside the city of Rome. Now Paul had written a letter to the Romans when he was at Corinth during his third missionary journey. So they are familiar with Paul and they really want to meet him. Um, So despite all the drama and all the predictions and all the anticipation, Paul gets to spend time with those Roman Christians before he heads into the city of Rome and his spirits are lifted. And in verse 15 here, um, Luke tells us that Paul thanked God and he took courage. Fellowship with other believers was always Paul's energizer, wasn't it? Paul didn't need a vacation. He didn't need a pedicure like um, may energize one of us. What Paul needed was simply some time with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And that gave him everything he needed. Now, when Paul finally arrives in Rome... He does what he has done throughout the book of Acts. He meets first with the Jewish leaders. Now, Paul's a prisoner here at this point, so he's not allowed to go to the synagogue. If you'll remember, what did he do? Every time he got to a new city, he went to the synagogue. He met with the Jewish leaders. This time, he has to invite the Jewish leaders to come to his house where he's under house arrest and there's an armed guard at the door. He wants to accomplish two things when he meets with these Jewish leaders. He wants an opportunity, first of all, to preach the gospel because that's what he does. He's got the Jewish leaders in his house and he's going to tell them who Jesus is. The second thing he wants to do is he wants to see if the Jewish leaders have formed an um, opinion of him already. If perhaps Jerusalem has communicated with them that Paul is somehow... um, Uh, maligning the Jewish uh, faith. So he meets with them, and what he does is he gives them, actually, uh, you looked at this in your homework, he gives them a great summary of what we've looked at in his last trials before Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. He tells them he's done nothing uh, to the Jews. He tells them that the Roman authorities... uh, in Judea had really already pronounced him innocent and that the reason that he had to come to Rome was because the Jewish authorities protested that verdict. Fortunately, uh, the Jewish leaders actually seem eager to hear what Paul says to them, so they schedule a meeting with him. So let's read what happens when he meets with all of the rest of the Jewish leaders. Look in verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he had to say, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. 
Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. When all the Jewish leaders come and stay at Paul's house, he starts in the morning and he goes all day long and he lays out for them every single scriptural argument that he has. And they're significant from the prophets and the law of Moses uh, about Jesus. He wants them to know that the promised deliverer that every one of them have longed for all of their life has already come and his name is Jesus. But what we see here is that one more time, one more time, the nation of Israel rejects Paul's message. Now verse 24 does say some were convinced that the original language of that some were convinced um, really implies that they were willing to hear more argument. And the fact that they left arguing about it among themselves shows us that there really were not any that were convicted um, of the gospel message. It was not embraced by the Jewish leaders. Paul quotes Isaiah here and applies it to the fellow Jews that are standing around him in that room. He says to them, you have hard hearts and you have deaf ears and you are spiritually blind. There's nothing soft in Paul's delivery here. Verse 28, um, you may want to circle that or mark it. Uh, It's a significant verse. It's a significant verse in our lives, and actually it's the climax of the book of of Acts because that's where Paul boldly proclaims that from here on out, um, his ministry is to the Gentiles. You know, from Jerusalem to Rome, Paul has been compelled compelled to proclaim Jesus Christ. He's been a witness everywhere he went, always first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. But as Luke uh, finishes his great story for us here in the book of Acts, and Paul witnesses the final rejection by the leaders of the nation of Israel, now Paul can do what he's wanted to do, which is turn his full focus on the Gentiles. Because as he says in verse 28, in his heart he knows this is right, They will listen. They will listen. Now we see in these last two verses that Paul actually lived a comfortable life in Rome for two more years. His friend Aristarchus lives with him. We see that he's able to boldly preach the gospel. The Romans do not interfere in Paul's ministry. I'm sure he loved that. And while he's imprisoned in Rome, Paul writes the prison epistles of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. Rome is a significant time in Paul's ministry, even though an armed guard, a guard, sits at his door. What we should remember as we sit here today um, is that the church has largely been founded because of Paul's unstoppable witness to the ends of the earth. The church that we sit in today, the fellowship that we have as believers, all of that is legacy of Paul's unstoppable witness that we've seen here in the book of Acts. In fact, theologian William Neal, in his commentary on Acts, right here at the end, he writes, the church is on the march and nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. Paul has built a vital bridge from Jerusalem to Rome. 
Acts 1.8 is one more time down at the bottom of your outline. I don't believe any of you have forgotten it, but I put it there because not only is it the key verse in the book of Acts, but it paints our big picture just like it painted Paul's. If we remember, just like Paul, who God is and what he's called us to do, then we're going to have an eternal perspective that keeps us focused on telling others who Jesus is because that's what Jesus has called us to do. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Pray with me. Father, you're gracious and good. Um, What an amazing story you've told us about Peter and Paul and just the founding of the church, the legacy that we enjoy today as a result of these amazing men and the fact that they did have an eternal perspective. Father, I pray that we would be changed by knowing the truth of the founding of your church, that we would be just like Paul, that we would keep our eyes focused on who you are and what you've called us to do, and we would tell others wherever we go who our Lord Jesus is. Thank you for this word. Thank you for these women. Thank you for our time together. And I pray this in the name of your son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks, ladies.